Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. In tonight's episode, I'm going to be discussing one of the most often requested cases in the history of nighttime. The disappearance and mysterious death of University of British Columbia student Elisa Lamb. This story will bring us to downtown Los Angeles, most specifically to the seedy and notorious Cecil Hotel. The story involves a bizarre video showing Elisa's last known moments in an elevator in the hotel. As well, it includes some very bleak and grim discussion of how she was found and the circumstances that led to her being found. Even if you're unaware of Elisa's name, you've likely seen this video as it basically went viral shortly after her disappearance. As well, you may have seen advertisements for or heard people discussing a new Netflix documentary series about Elisa's case called Crime Scene. My guest tonight, who will be joining me for this discussion, is one of the participants in that Netflix documentary. He's a well-known YouTuber and true crime podcaster named John Lorden. John has been working to understand what led to Elisa's death for years, and in some of the content he created dedicated to it is some of the internet's most popular. So let's get to it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, my guest is John Lorden, and our topic is the mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. John Lorden, I think it's fair to say that you are the hardest working man in true crime? Do you think that's a, an understatement or an overstatement? <laughs> I'll take it. Whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm up for it. Um, I, get, I get it. Like I was just in preparing for this, I was looking at the different things you do and I, I was exhausted even just reading it. How do you find the time to do as much as you do? Um, it's the luxury of being able to do this as a career. It's um, working through taking it from uh, kind of being a hobby or something like that and pushing beyond all that it was uh, it was a big step to really say you know what I'm gonna stick with this YouTube thing I'm gonna try to ride this out I'm going to uh, you know kind of ratchet down my finances I'm gonna sell a car like you know you make you make some sacrifices <laughs> yeah um, but ultimately a couple of years of hard work and all of a sudden YouTube you know starts set, gathering pennies for you and when there's a ten dollar bill, a ten dollar bill gets sent to you, and yeah. you know that's well, how it starts. Well, whatever whatever it took, you did it. So why don't you just give it like for people watching who haven't had the pleasure of viewing your content or listening to your content or the variety of things you do? Give us a rundown. What, who are you, and what are you up to? Um, well, at this point, um, I have three shows on YouTube that you're going to see every week. On Monday, it's called Case Cracked. Uh, and that is about how cases are solved and what's the critical piece that helps solve them. Um, Brain Scratch is the show I'm most well known for. That's where the Elisa Lamb series is and a whole bunch of other mysteries that we've looked at over the years. 
And then there's a kind of a spinoff of Brain Scratch called Searchlight, which is focused on missing persons cases particularly. And um, that's the mainstay for the YouTube channel. But I'm also in podcasting. I just started a podcast recently called Seriously Mysterious. That is weekly, released every Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I've got a once a month podcast that I do with another YouTuber. Uh, her name's Danielle Hallen, and it's called Crime After Crime. It's a pretty fun format. It, we look at kind of lighter crimes, things that aren't quite as heavy, and we have a little competition. Like we'll pick a category, and she'll research a story, I'll research a story, and then we present it, and we let the audience vote on which one they liked best. Um, and then Three Men in a Mystery is the last one, and that's a real deep dive into strong cases. Like just we pull experts, we get police records. I mean, it's it's a very intensive deep dive podcast. So, so wow, so we're we're about I guess about four minutes into this, and so far you've just listed this the shows you make. So it's yeah, yeah you're the hardest working guy in this. Honestly, it's uh, and and people <laughs> love your style. Uh, the way I would always just like the way I describe you is you, you kind of have the the super curious everyman sort of vibe. So you're not coming into it as like, I'm this expert who's going to solve the case. You're just a really curious fella who just found, you know, a, a, their niche in, in telling these stories and bringing people along in the investigation. So it's uh, what, what you do is awesome. And I, I get why so many people adore you and why there's such a demand to have you pulled in all these different directions to the point that you're, basically have an alphabet of podcasts and YouTube channels that you're launching. Um, Absolutely. So, um, and, and you forgot to add to the list is you're, you're now like a Netflix star. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So. That's, that's a whole different twist on this that um, quite honestly, I wasn't expecting. I, I had gotten in the pattern with Elisa's story in particular mm -hmm. of trying to do as many interviews as I could about that case um, because I thought it was so important to, I know that there's a bunch of compelling aspects. I know there's a bunch of interesting theories, but there's a, a reality to the mental health conversation oh, yeah. that I always wanted to at least present. I just, I wanted a chance, you know, if someone was going to run off and do a production about this story, if they were going to use my input or not, I wanted to make sure that they knew that there was a very strong, important throughput to that story, which was, mental health crisis like you know we've we've got all the indicators if if you really look into this you can learn quickly that that's certainly a component is Hell is yeah. there a lot of other strange things going on with it yes absolutely and i was kind of hoping i had several points when i was looking at this story where i was like okay this should be it like i've 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 done all this analysis i've stayed open minded and looked into all these different theories now I'm at the point where, okay, if they followed along with me, this should be it. We, we should be fine here. Mm -hmm. But then there would be, you know, investigation discovery would release a new special. And there would be another influx of questions and people wondering about it. And I'd have to kind of push back out and say, okay, we're going to try to get through this conversation again. Mm -hmm. For the Netflix project, I really wanted it to be it. And when I heard, uh, you know, we had Joe Berlinger working on it. Um, I know his work. I know that he looks at things from multiple angles and I felt confident that this was going to be kind of the definitive version of this story. And quite honestly, I think it is. There's a lot of aspects it doesn't go into, but I kind of agree with the choices that they made and the way they laid it out. Unfortunately, 
we still got a piece or two that people are now coming up and they're like, Hey, what about this? There's, we have new information and always with new information seems to follow new questions. So, yeah. And now long before there was a Netflix special back when you just had one or two YouTube channels, the story of Elisa Lamb has become for whatever reason, it, it's obvious that you've been swept up in, in this mystery. If you had to just sum it up, what do you think it is about her story that has drawn you into the point it has, as well as, you know, so many other people, like what, what about her story sunk its teeth into you? Um, I think it's easy to associate with her. Mm-hmm. I think because of the digital footprint that she left. And, and for me being someone that's a little bit older, looking back at, at her content and reading through it, it took me back to the, ch- the challenges of trying to figure out who I was going to be in this world when I was rolling out of school and trying to get these jobs. And there's a real tone in particular about her not fitting in. And that, I think, is something that many of us out here can associate with. So mm-hmm. that's I think if, the, if I was going to boil it down to one thing, I think that's the strongest component. I can tell you after doing all this coverage and and being part of this ongoing conversation over the years people also associate strongly with the um, bipolar issues the depression issues that she was dealing with uh trying to get through school and just struggling and then just trying to trying to find her way Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah there's when you talk about the mental health angle and in connecting with that that's one part of her story that I think it's it's so apparent, yet so much of the online discourse and the theories seem to ignore that. Well, when we get through her story, I think um, what I'd like to do is kind of talk through her story, but avoid initially a lot of the more out there theories. Because I think when you just mm-hmm. look at the facts, it becomes so so obvious that her mental health is, you know, it is at the absolute core of everything that that goes down yeah so the first thing i guess before we even get to elisa to to get the the context of her disappearance it's it's important to understand the cecil hotel where that is the infamy that's associated with the hotel i didn't realize you were you had been there a few times when i watched the netflix documentary not only did you go there you're like snooping around solving the mystery basically why don't you tell me about visiting the cecil hotel and get a bit give me a bit of the the history of like what makes this place so notorious well there's um there's a significant homeless population i I think the documentary does this really well in the first episode but it kind of lays out the history of it Mm -hmm. uh effectively there's certain parts of los angeles where they're almost kind of scooping up the homeless and and pushing them into other pockets of Los Angeles. And for some reason, particularly around the Cecil hotel, there's a very strong concentration. Um, With that, there's a lot of issues in mental health, mental health right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Um, But you've also got drug use and, you know, criminal elements. I mean, all the other things that go with a population that needs resources and no one's really looking after. So, um, the actual building and the story of the building, it's like the building also can't come to grips with what it's supposed to be. You know, it's, it's a hotel. Wait, no, it's not. It's, it's a low, uh, low cost living quarters for people that are on the, the fringe of society. Um, and, and even if you look at 
what they tried to do with it. And when they're trying to re-engineer the hotel time and time again, you have the city pushing back on it, saying, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to have this much of it that is still for low-income population. Um, there's been multiple buyers that have bought it with the thought that, oh, I can come in and just you know change this whole thing. And the city of Los Angeles is kind of locking that in. So, mm-hmm. uh, of course, it's got a notorious past for... Um, Jack Unterweger and Richard Ramirez being related to it. So I, I, I didn't dive into those aspects too much more than just seeing the kind of general information that was out there about it. It's interesting because now that the documentary is hit, I'm seeing other people commenting about some of those theories and they're like, you know what? The ties with Richard Ramirez being there, maybe not as strong as we originally thought. Mm. Uh, Black Dahlia constantly comes up and that's one same thing. If you actually go looking into it, well, it's some guy that thought he saw her at the bar once. I mean, it's some of the stuff in terms of a legend and the lore uh, seems to be getting looser and looser as more and more people come looking yeah. into it and, and really looking for the details. Kind, kind of like if, if the Bermuda Triangle had a cousin that was in a hotel building in downtown Los Angeles. It yeah. has these, there's these kind of vague uh, connections to really dark times, but I guess, and there, of course, there's been suicides and murders and stuff, but I, I'm yeah. thinking if you find a, you know, an 80-ish year old building used as a ho- low-income housing slash hotel downtown any major city you're gonna be able to go through the history and find that but at the end of the day the cecil hotel is a building that has some danger within it due to social problems that exist in that area i would i would say is probably a good way to to sum it up but it's like when you when you see the hotel and hear about its history it just doesn't seem like the kind of place that a young woman traveling alone from Canada would choose as her stop off. But what I didn't realize until I watched the Netflix documentary was the management of the Cecil hotel was kind of trying to combat the, the negative kind of perception of that hotel and sort of created almost a separate business within the Cecil hotel, almost to give it like a fresh start for marketing. Can you, can you talk a bit about the stay on Maine? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the stay on Maine was that new idea. They had to disassociate. You had all this history, if it's true or not, connected to the Cecil Hotel. Uh, so if I was going to travel and, you know, all of a sudden I want to do a little extra checking on the hotel I'm staying at, run that name, you're going to see Jack Unterweger. You're going to see Richard Ramirez. I mean, all these mm-hmm. terrible stories, not great for business. So they decided to kind of rebrand a part of the hotel, stay on Maine. They used this orange paint and they had all these kind of, you know, young, hip looking um, lobby. But it actually wasn't the same lobby as a Cecil. They they kind of made a second entrance to the side of the Cecil. As a matter of fact, if you look through Elisa's writing, she didn't think that she was staying at the Cecil Hotel. She described it as uh, the, the lobby next door looks like the Great Gatsby gone on crack. <laughs> Um, I don't think she realized she was actually staying in that same building because she had gone into the stay on main entrance, which was next to it. Uh, and yeah, that's, I think that's an unfortunate side effect of all this because in that rebranding, I don't want to say like people were tricked, but you know, you don't know that you're actually staying in this kind of historical known for being bad building mm-hmm. because you're, Oh, it's a stay on main and look, they're getting good reviews and the rates are really low. 
She was staying in a shared room where you could, you know, if you if you're traveling on the dime, you could just rent a bed instead of getting your own room. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, but it was yeah, basically like like a um, they rebranded to almost have like a trendy hostel in the yeah. center of a seedy apartment building that is known for social problems and drugs and prostitution and suicide and serial registered sex offenders living there i mean yeah yeah you you had everything under Mm -hmm. and there was for a while the lapd even had this policy of just having open access to the hotel because there was so much going on there they were just constantly in and out so yeah yeah uh so we get the idea of the cecil hotel and what was going on there at the time then enters Elisa Lamb, who seems to, like, although she's known now for the mystery that surrounds her death, it seems in life she was a, a bit of a mystery and enigma. Like, it's, when when you read about her, very few people seem to know much about her background and her life. My understanding is she was raised in British Columbia by an immigrant family. She mm-hmm. seemed to be, for the most part, kept to herself with the exception of branching out on, you know, Tumblr and various yeah. blogs like did, did you were you ever in touch with people from her life or learn anything about her with the exception of these this bare minimum that's out there no no and and that was such a hard aspect of it because yeah you, you do want to understand the person more deeply what mm-hmm. the, what's the backstory there if some of that information was a little more available uh who knows how it could have maybe put this story to rest years ago you know one of the things that's frustrating for someone that's been looking into this case so long is when you hit episode four of, um, of the show of crime scene, all this information comes out and you're like, well, if we had that before, Mm -hmm. like, you know, if we knew there was a history, if we knew the family was aware that there was some history around this, if we knew the details that are, are essentially being kept by the general manager throughout all the years, Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying all of it, but I think a lot of the conjecture online and stuff could have been limited a a bit by that information coming out. It just as things fell into place, it just seemed like the information that became public was the most mysterious and fascinating without the right context. And and it really took her case just just to that next level of like viral sensation. Um, you, you talked a bit about her writing there, and although it doesn't seem like a lot of people close to Elisa or her family came and spoke publicly, we do manage to hear from her directly through through her writing, which does seem to relay the fact that she suffered depression and yeah. mental health issues. Like I didn't dig as deep into her writing as I'm sure you did. Was there anything about her writing that gave you a sense of who she was as a person? Oh, I mean, this is this is a woman that loved to read. This is a woman that loved uh, Harry Potter. And that kind of wound up having a weird side effect and starting a whole weird conspiracy theory because she retweeted something about an invisibility cloak, hmm. which I think for a Harry Potter fan is a pretty obvious reference. But because the tone of the article was about it being used in a military application, hmm. that started the whole invisibility cloak. Oh, wait. In the elevator footage, can't you see the shimmering on the right side? There's someone in an invisibility cloak in the elevator with her type of theory. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And it's, you know, a big focus for me, Jordan, when I was looking into this was I knew that some of those theories were just, they were coming from left field. Mm -hmm. But 
to get on YouTube and to say, hey, look, guys, this theory that you're talking about, this thing's totally whacked out. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Like, where's that conversation going to go? You're not going anywhere with that conversation. You're not taking any of the people that believe in that conversation and moving their needle to, okay, maybe I shouldn't be considering that. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was really important. And I don't think this comes across well in the documentary. I thought it was really important to stay open to those conversations so I could fully understand those perspectives and then take on the research and counter it and say, okay, here's what you guys told me. You told me there's something to this invisibility cloak because of this tweet. I'm going to look into this tweet. I'm going to look into the article. I'm going to look into everything I can find out about invisibility cloaks because quite honestly, I don't think the technology is there to even do this stuff yet. Um, and then have a conversation about that and put it back to the audience. And the great thing about YouTube, which I still feel like YouTube doesn't even quite realize is it's a conversation that goes back and forth. Podcasts don't even have this benefit. Mm -hmm. We put the content here on YouTube. People can be looking down below right now, going through comments, getting, getting new levels of understanding. And in Elisa series in particular, that was a regular mode for me. I would put something out and say, okay, what are they thinking about that? What are they saying about that? What do I need to address? Is there other things I need to look into? Do I need to pick that theory back up because I didn't put it down hard enough or whatever? <laughs> That's why you have to approach it just completely open-minded. And if if I'm going to process this, I'm going to process this. I'm going to get to a conclusion. I'm going to put out that conclusion. And if you guys are critical about it, give me a good reason why. And we're going to open it back up and, and go into it again. Mm -hmm. I thought that was the most respectful way to do that conversation try to shift the overall perspective for people that cared enough to really look into it deeper than just telling a creepy story about it. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I've been working at that for years at this point. It takes quite a bit of patience to try to change the opinion of an online uh, armchair detective web sleuth group that have uh, made up their minds that invisibility cloaks are involved in Elisa Lamb's uh, disappearance and death. Um, yeah. So I, I, um, I thank you for taking on that cause, but uh, I think there's some people you you just won't change their opinion. Um, you're you're absolutely right, Jordan. But there are successes in it that I still think about. I still look back on, even with crime scene coming out and some of the critique that's coming our way around that. I've had some amazing conversations with people on the complete opposite side of my belief structure, and that was a major component for me with Brain Scratch right from the start. I always wanted to learn other people's perspectives, why those belief structures are so strong, and then I could evaluate, is this something I need to change within myself? And I, I have. My beliefs absolutely have shifted from the start of this to now. Mm. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Mora's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004. This is Missing. After all these years, once the podcast started coming out, we started getting tips. One of her husband, Richard's family members came forward. 
specifically asked us to search this spot. It's a 31 foot vertical shaft. And then it went over and then it went through a crevice and then there's another room. How close was this area to where Erica went missing? Probably two miles. There were sightings of Keys within a mile of a diner that she worked at a few weeks before she went missing, um, asking people how deep Lake Champlain was in certain points and asking people if um, anyone would know they disappeared. Uh, you know, just common small talk you make with strangers. Wow, so that was the other job that Brianna Maitland had. She was driving really crazy on the way home. She was tailgating, driving fast. She seemed to be irritated about something all of a sudden. Everything was fine, but all of a sudden, and I think it had to do with that phone call. I was in the dentist chair and the local radio station came on. And that's how I found out. It was Archer Ray Johnson is missing. And I was, okay, that's not a name that you hear. You're in a small town. I knew it was my dad. But I think sometimes we all need to be reminded that for every day that you don't do something, that you don't act or you aren't on the offensive, that someone is in great anguish. Follow us on social media at Missing CSM. Search for Missing in your favorite podcatcher. Now, one thing about uh, about Elisa's story. So she's this for the most part, stays to herself at home in Canada, but she yep. decides to go on a solo, she called it, I think she said, her West Coast tour. She just decided to yep. vacation on her own. What was her motivation? Did she ever express like in her writing why she was choosing to do this? Um, I, I don't think she directly expressed it. She talked about the excitement of it. Uh, she talked about wanting to possibly meet people while she was on it. Um, you know, she was going to start from basically the southern end of California and kind of move her way up the coast uh, with a couple of important stops to her, if I recall correctly. And, you know, it's been years. So I'm dusting it off a little bit. I think there was a SeaWorld aspect. Mm -hmm. There was something in the kind a, of mid-Cal... A, a television uh, recording she, she sat in on? The television recording, and this is kind of an interesting aspect because this isn't my own thought. This is something of... of a commenter brought to me it was the conan o'brien show I, I had already known that before they didn't talk about it in the actual documentary they didn't name the show mm -hmm. um and we learned in the documentary which i didn't know before that she had written some kind of letter was trying to give it to staff to give to conan apparently um and that they it, it i don't know if it freaked out the staff but for some reason they actually asked her to leave they they, they escorted her out uh, I had a commenter say, are you aware, like, does Conan O'Brien, is is he known for being bipolar or something like that? And I'm like, you know what, I honestly don't know. And it literally took 30, 30 seconds of searching on the web. I found this big old article about Conan talking about struggling with depression and bipolar wow. disorder. And I was like, Phew. so that's like another connection um, kind of supports the narrative that I think is important to talk about with the mental health aspect in a whole different way. And information that we didn't know until one of the best true crime directors came along and picked up this story and, you know, got, yeah. got together an amazing production team and, and ran it through Netflix. So mm -hmm. just it, we are I, getting 
more and more understanding through this. Yeah, and I think that was one thing that this that this story that this documentary series on Netflix did is, is it brought you through some of the stranger places, but at the end, I think it really drives home the, the most logical explanation for for what happens. Now, we we talked about for the the TV appearance Conan. I didn't know it was Conan until right now, but she exhibited apparently strange enough behavior that they asked her to leave the recording for better or yeah. worse, but it seems like the events that lead to her disappearance really start in the days prior with some strange behavior. So whatever happened at the recording of that television show, that's one thing. But even when she gets to the Cecil, you you had or uh, stay on Maine, you had mm-hmm. we had talked about how she was initially staying in sort of a hostel like shared accommodations. But right. her behavior, and this is days before her disappearance, her behavior with the other, you know, co-tenants was enough to show that whatever was happening that eventually leads to her death, I think, was started days prior. Can can you talk about, you know, what was what led to her uh, making herself um, appear abnormal? I suppose. Uh, or, yeah, right. yeah. Uh, so it was there was other a big interesting aspect to this like you know you have this story around elisa and all these people that want to go to the cecil and now people that want to stay in the room that she was supposedly in for some reason the room number 412 if i remember correctly was the room that everyone thought she was in and we get to the wrongful death suit the family uh you know is is essentially suing the hotel uh, for responsibility some kind of responsibility with her death and new legal documents start being released. And in those, I'm getting depositions and I'm starting to buy these materials and, and researching this to learn more. Uh, in those depositions, that's where I first learned about Amy Price. It's where I first learned about Santiago Lopez mm-hmm. and their point of view in terms of what happened. In that deposition, Amy Price does talk about there was some type of conflict with the other people in the room. And because of that, they moved Elisa to another uh, solo room. I I believe, if I recall correctly, the date of when they moved her to that other room, I don't even think she slept in that room once. I think oh. they moved her on the same day of the elevator, if if I'm if I'm recalling correctly. And there's a chance because I'm telling you this is years ago. But um <laughs> yeah, so uh we we learn in the documentary is she was actually doing things like keeping the door closed and she wouldn't let the other roommates come into their room where their stuff was she's leaving notes on their pillow telling them to go away things like that if i remember right in the legal documentation there was some other talk about maybe that she was talking very loud or in the middle of the night something something to that effect that i remember from the legal documentation Mm -hmm. but um it was much more direct uh, the information that came out in crime scene it was enough to lead these people to complain to the hotel management. The hotel yeah. management's response would be was to take Elisa out of the shared living arrangement and give her her own private room in the in the stay on Main or the Cecil Hotel, which yeah. you know, I, I know they've been criticized somewhat for not stepping in and, you know, involving police or something, but I'm I'm thinking if the Cecil Hotel called the police every time someone acted unusual in there um, yeah, they would probably themselves end up charged for uh, harassing the police. Like I, 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 that 
not to make light of that criticism, but that's just something where I think for a hotel like to, that's a really big line to cross to start getting that directly involved and in, you know in their their you know the people staying there. What what are your thoughts on their handling of Elisa at least at this point? Um, the the big term I keep holding on to is just missed opportunities. You know, mm-hmm. we've got people noticing there's something wrong. Um, especially when you comp- compile all that information together. I mean, are, are we talking about her being sped up in the middle of the night? Do you think that possibly there could be some kind of drug issue or something along mm-hmm. those lines? Uh, and I think people are rightfully thinking about the process. You know, is it the right move for the general manager to say, okay, we're going to move you into your own room with the type types of things that they were being notified about. Mm-hmm. But to your point, I mean, it's a hotel. You expect privacy. I think any of us do when we're staying at something like that. And to think that um, someone would be, would be watching us or or trying to change what we wanted to do with our own time or something like that, it, it's, it's a fine line. And while I do wonder about the missed opportunities, how much they noticed, how they could have helped, what could they have done? And this is another great conversation that's happening now that crime scene has come out because now I'm hearing from... Uh, law enforcement officers who are leaving comments are like, you know what, we wouldn't be able to do anything like that. Yeah, we could come out and do some type of welfare check. But what we're, we're going to 5150 her and drag her into a hospital or something. That's just it's not going to happen like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's an important question to just think of in terms of responsibility level. What's the responsibility of people that are managing a building like that what's the responsibility of law enforcement for dealing with a situation like that do we have a responsibility just as citizens if if you see someone walking down the street unfortunately in that area i can tell you uh the several times that i was down there i can't think of a time i went down there and i didn't see someone that seemed like they needed help i mean people Mm -hmm. need help down there so it's unfortunate because of where she was she actually probably blended into the environment a bit too much for some of those mechanisms to, to kind of kick in. Now, anything going wrong with Elisa and any um, need to step in and, you know, and help her in any way, it seems to really become apparent um, when she misses her checkout time. Like that's really what starts everything. She, she had a certain yeah. time and date that she had to check out of the hotel as, as you would know. Um, that is, that's really when a flag's raised that, something's wrong because she doesn't, you know, and I, and I, am I correct where that's just really yeah. what starts at all? She just doesn't check out. Yeah. She just doesn't check out and uh, they have a bunch of her stuff and they bag it up and they put it in this room down in the basement. Um, some other people are asking, is that the time where you have a warning indicator? Cause all of her personal items have basically been left behind. And this is something they didn't really push into with crime scene. And I don't, I don't think there's, really investigative value but uh i believe she had a laptop i think the laptop would have been left in the room that Mm -hmm. was either bagged up um there's a cell phone they didn't push into the cell phone stuff as well but once again i i just i don't think it was super helpful um so yeah but you know someone leaves behind a thousand dollar laptop and all their personal items is that the point where you call police and you say hey you know what we had this girl she was acting strange we don't know where she is now. All her items were left behind. We bagged them and, and we put them away. Mm-hmm. Um, so missed opportunities. Yeah. But it wasn't long after that, that 
her it, like what started the search was it her her family searching for her or the hotel like how did the police get involved and, and what led to people being like where is this young woman the family knew something was wrong very quickly because she was in daily contact with them mm-hmm. uh leading right right up to her disappearance so it was literally within a day or so of not having contact that i believe they started calling i think because of the interpol connectivity i mean yeah. the, you know we're talking about a canadian citizen and uh being on u.s soil i think that helped kind of escalate things in terms of getting the lapd's attention and uh having them kind of rush to it some people are like why why did she why did she get so much coverage like we have people that go missing all the time in los angeles why is this getting a big you know press release and and all this kind of stuff mm-hmm. i think it's because of that international aspect of the story it kind of raised it to a different level yeah that 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 could be it but it's when when they when they initially start searching for her that's when this elevator video comes up where they of course they'll they go through the security footage looking for any sign of her coming or going yep. the police managed to find a video shot from a security camera within the elevator and i still cannot understand completely their motivation for doing this but the police release the video publicly i guess looking for people maybe who would have recognized her or something but yeah. i don't think they ever would have expected the attention that that elevator video would get where it brought this case from you know a local story with some international connection in canada to being one of the biggest missing persons cases true crime mysteries in the world and it's and i think it's all because of this video of elisa which it turns out to be her last known or, or the last time we see her alive basically yeah. to sum it up acting really weird in an elevator inside the cecil hotel uh this video is released and anyone who knows this case knows this video because it just became you know the one of the most widely shared videos on the internet I'm not going to try to explain it, uh, what happens in it. Do you want to talk through, you know, the the main things you see in this video and why it got so much attention? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've described it um, previously as it's like a, it's like a four minute mystery or horror movie, like all wrapped up in this one little four minute segment. And it, it's even more bizarre because, you know, wait, this is coming from the LAPD. This is real. Um, you have her entering the elevator She's looking down. She's hitting buttons on the panel. Uh, she kind of, at first, seems like she's acting normal. She steps into the back corner of the elevator like she's waiting for it to go somewhere. Um, but then things get kind of strange very fast. Uh, she steps towards the door, and she whips her head outside the door and looks both ways and then pulls herself back in, mm-hmm. almost like you would imagine someone um, like looking around a corner if they were worried that there was a sniper or something like just mm-hmm. a very fast motion of, of jagging her head in and out of the elevator. And then she steps to the corner closest to the door. So she's now in kind of a hiding position. Uh, you know, if anyone's walking down the hall or passing by the elevator, she would now be hidden from them. Um, and there's this lingering question that starts because the elevator doors just don't seem to be closing. We, we don't know why, but they're just staying open. And it's one of those things where you're wondering, is this what's going on with her as well? Is she wondering why the elevator doors are still staying open? She kind of steps out of the elevator. She does this strange kind of square dance shuffle step. Um, she kind of hyper extends some of her fingers and it looks almost like 
like I would almost imagine like she's casting a spell or something. Some people think it's sign language, but I haven't found any good analysis for, for proving it's actually sign language, but she's waving her hand around kind of in the doorway of the elevator. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it almost and, looks like she's like play, like spinning records like a DJ would, except they're invisible records. But as she's doing it, it's almost like, She's almost looks like her hands are almost double jointed or something as if she's yeah. really straining her, you know, the, to spread her fingers or something. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so she leaves. And then this is something I still don't understand. And considering that they got the detective that actually found the footage, I'm really surprised they didn't just put the question to him. But for some reason, the video continues for 90 seconds after that. And mm-hmm. it's the elevator being stuck open. Uh, and then at some point the doors do eventually close and it starts going from floor to floor. I think it hits two or three floors and then ends. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a very bizarre piece of tape. I, I, I still don't comprehend what the value of it was investigatively. Uh, another thing I would have loved to ask that detective is, uh, is this the only tape that you have of her in the elevator? Cause that doesn't make sense. This is up on the 14th floor. So, I mean, I suppose she could have taken the stairs to go up there, but, You've had her there for several days at this point. You've probably got other footage of her in the elevator. So mm-hmm. why is it this clip? And outside of that, the quality of the footage in that elevator, I've looked into hundreds of missing persons cases at this point. That footage is some of the worst footage I've ever seen. You can't tell anything outside of the simple explanation of her clothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's at least of you know investigative value. Yeah, so. I, I felt this the same way. It's just um, awful quality. It looks like a webcam from the 90s uh, shot yeah. that. But this hotel, the Cecil Hotel, as we talked about, it's a rundown building. They've been heavily criticized for having, um, you know, the security and the maintenance of the building. So I guess it's reasonable to think that they just had the lowest bar for recording equipment god knows when this was installed and if it was ever upgraded or maintained but um a lot of people also ask about once she leaves the elevator isn't there a camera in the hallway to mm-hmm. pick up her movement from there and when i was there it was one of the things that i was looking for where's all the cameras what are the locations of the cameras there is a dome that's in the hallway but what i've come to understand is there's a lot of fake camera domes that are in those hallways they're not they're not active they don't work they did add more cameras after this occurrence uh, yeah particularly around the front and it's super obvious because they're modern cameras they have ir sensors and you can see that they're flickering at you as you're basically walking by but um Mm -hmm. for at the time yeah that was the last time she was seen and i don't think there was any other camera especially if 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 we think that that's the last time that she's seen and she goes directly to the window fire escape and climbs up the side and gets to the roof. Um, that would have been a straight walk down the hall to that fire escape. And that'd be it. She'd be outside from that point forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And th- there's a few things in the, the crime scene in the Netflix special that you were involved in that really answered some of the questions about this video. One is a, a lot of people, wondered why the elevator door stayed open and i've wondered that myself because it's you know there's three minutes or so that she's in there and the doors are just staying open as she's kind of hiding and peeking around but when you were there yourself i I believe you're responsible for at least telling the public why that happened 
It wasn't actually me. I did verify it. Um, okay. There was another YouTuber, really young man. Uh, he was 19 years old at the time. I think he was just starting college or getting ready to go to college. Uh, and once again, this is just me being in tap with my community. Um, we we got in contact. He told me about this button. And when I first heard about it, I was like, "What? what's this guy talking about? Hold elevator. What would that be for? Uh, well, think about what this hotel is. You got people that are living there and there is no freight elevator. So if someone's moving in, if they're bringing any substantial stuff with them, you need a way to actually freeze the elevator for a few minutes while you're loading it up or unloading. Mm -hmm. So it does have this hold elevator button and it's in the same row of the buttons that she was hitting. She was hitting multiple buttons and right in the bottom of that same row is this hold elevator button. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I did verify when I was there was we actually tested it to see how long that it stayed open. Uh, and it's two minutes from basically the last press of that button that so, it'll, it'll stay open. Mm -hmm. So that explains that mystery, at least about the, the door staying open. Because that, that's always puzzled me. Because that led some people to speculate maybe someone was outside hitting the call button. Or maybe her sticking her hands out was to keep the uh, the elevator door open, like setting off that sensor. But no, it seems like she just hit the whole door button, which must be an older feature of elevators. Because I don't recall being in an elevator and seeing, seeing I've that I've never button. seen one. I've yeah. never seen one in any other elevator. But most buildings... I've I, I've worked in several buildings like that. They usually have freight elevators and the freight elevators usually have that functionality, some type of pull button or a switch that you flip so that they stop at that spot and you can load cargo on and off mm -hmm. of them. But because they don't have a freight elevator, I think they just implemented that with the, the passenger ones. Yeah. So at, at this point in the story, Elise has disappeared. We have this video shared showing her behaving bizarre in a bizarre fashion, you know, uh, as her last, known living moment basically well right. before she's found what are the theories like what do people think is happening was this did this at least appear online to be foul play as people are discussing it what are yours um i you know at, the, at that point i believe it was just standard missing person um but then when the video kicks out it, it just it changes everything the mm -hmm. the weirdness around the actions and stuff like that it just it opened up it was the fodder for all of the different theories to come after it there was a very quick group that was like okay well this girl's on drugs you know mm -hmm. or this girl's having some type of psychotic break and there's it's weird because i keep trying to be sure that we're representing the mental health conversation properly but there was also a dismissive way that people were looking at that it's like, oh, well, this this girl just went crazy. And it's almost like you throw that explanation out there and you can just disassociate your feelings from the case. And yeah, whatever happens, happens. I saw the footage. I know she went crazy and that was that. Mm. And that's kind of another unfortunate way of, of looking at this case and something that I was also trying to hope my coverage would help engage people in a way that, hey, let's learn a little bit more about this. You know, going crazy. That's that's not a great explanation in itself. Um. You know, looking at her materials, talking about bipolar disorder, depression, the medications that she was on, a recent change in medication that she had been going through, the possibility that she wasn't taking her medications properly, which they strongly hit the note of in crime scene. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had looked at some of the side effects of some of her individual medications and psychosis like that was certainly a, a possibility. Uh, so it's 
yeah, it's just, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot with this case. Yeah. Now, any mystery surrounding where she went and what possibly was going on in the elevator video, a lot of the questions are answered on the February 19th, which is just the anniversary of this is just days from now. Um, yeah. And it begins with complaints about the water pressure in the building. Now, this is a, a grim, bleak section of the story, but to cover her entire story, this is something we need to get through. Yeah. People in the building, in the hotel, are complaining of you know dark discharge in the water, a foul taste and smell in the water, or just very reduced water pressure. pressure. Yeah. That leads to calls to you know the front desk or whatever, and they send, I forget the name, Santiago? Santiago Lopez, yeah. He's the maintenance yeah. man, and they send him to the roof of the building. And I, I didn't know about this, this um, kind of system within a building is... For a high-rise building, I suppose they have large water tanks on the top of the building. Water is pumped into them, and then from there, it's fed to the different units in the building. Yeah, uh, a gravity gravity well system, basically. Um, but there was there was steps that were in between there that they actually didn't go into in crime scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Through the legal documentation, I learned about some of the other troubleshooting steps that Santiago had taken, and that was kind of imp- not super important context investigatively, but now you know, you put out a piece of art that's that big on, on a platform like Netflix and people are like, how did this guy know to all of a sudden go check the tank? Isn't that suspicious? Now, shouldn't we be looking at Santiago? Mm. It's like, well, if you look at the legal documentation, he actually did a series of troubleshooting steps. Uh, he went to different rooms to test the pressure in certain specific rooms that were fed by that same water line. Apparently, all the water tanks don't feed all the rooms. There's certain rooms that are geared for cer- certain water tanks. There's four tanks up there. Okay. So he was taking troubleshooting steps to figure out where he thought the problem was, then got to the point of going to the roof and knowing specifically what tank he had to deal with. And that's that's when he made the discovery. Yeah. So on the top of the roof, there's four large tanks that are, I believe, four feet wide and just under nine feet high. So these are large yeah. tanks. Santiago, the maintenance man, climbs up on one. We learn in the documentary that there's a little door on the top that would be used to service them. Yep. It's left open. He looks inside and finds Elisa yeah, naked and deceased. Yeah. Floating face up. Um, and the the hatch was probably outside of the elevator footage. Mm-hmm. The hatch was probably one of the biggest things that kept this conversation going for years mm-hmm. because information had come out that the hatch was actually on the tank when she was found. Like, and, like closed. The, right. And, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's not a hinged hatch. It's actually a square piece of metal with a lip on it and oh. it, fits, it fits over the opening. So it's a little different. I know a lot of people imagine, oh, it's hinged and it's kind of flipped open. It's actually a, a piece of solid metal that you lift off of the hole and then move it to the side. And that, of course, added to the mystery, too, because you're like, well, hold on. If the hatch was closed and she's five foot three and she's in a tank that's over eight feet tall, how is she going to pull that 20 pound hatch? Like, how do you get it back in place? There's it, it's just almost physically impossible. Um I thought that, of it as as a hinged cap, and I was I've always considered maybe she just opened it enough to get in, and then just allowed it to fall. Right, kind of grab it. 
yeah grab it as you're falling in or something yeah and that that was one of the biggest problems with this case from the start is you know there's there's pictures of the rooftop there's pictures of the hatch you can see that it's a big piece of sheet metal essentially that's uh, just removed and moved off to the side but then santiago um you know through the court documentation that's when i learned that the hatch was actually off and for me that was the biggest shift in my belief of what had happened the hatch was the thing that kept me stuck the the elevator footage you could have all kinds of different theories about it i did not see richard ramirez's ghost thankfully another youtuber did a feature on it where they're like by the way richard ramirez was still alive when that footage was taken so what's his ghost doing <laughs> in the elevator i don't know um and and that's you know part of the benefit i think of having this online community and having all these different people take a look at it. I mean, looking at it from a crowdsourcing perspective, there's all these little, yes, there's the downside of the theories, the wacky theories that are being supported and, and run around. But for people that are actually looking for the truth and starting to lay out the building blocks of, of building that bridge to it, it takes a lot of different perspectives to understand all these little different parts. Someone just thinking, hey, you know what? Let me do a quick search on, oh yeah, Richard Ramirez, he, pff, he was alive. What are you talking about? You're seeing this ghost in there. Um, so yeah, it's uh, unfortunate. Uh, fortunately, you know, Santiago makes that discovery. And I think you can see it on the guy's face when he's talking about it. You never forget something like that. It's, it's stuck with him for, for life. Yeah, both the the sight of finding someone in that position, but also playing through your head what what their last moments must have been like. I, I can only imagine that when that happened, it must have all hit him, and I'm sure it still is hitting him, dealing yeah. with that. And as you described, the hatch that that led to a lot of speculation that foul play may or may not be involved. But I think the documentary really sets the record straight that the hatch was initially not on. Right. The official explanation, unless I'm mistaken, is that as a as a motivated by her mental health breakdown or her bipolar um, mental illness, they the official explanation is that she drowned as a result of like misadventure or like an accidental death. Like is that the, the official explanation is that it was just a pure accident that, that is yeah. Yeah, that is. It's uh, accidental death with bipolar disorder being a contributing factor is actually how it's noted. Yeah, mm -hmm. And I think um, that's the official explanation. And believe it or not, there are, there are a lot of people who who question that, think foul play and other various things are involved. The hatch was a big part of that. Mm -hmm. Also, her access to the roof, there was some question about if she'd be able to get on the roof. Uh, yeah. But as it in the documentary, we see you and a, and a group of others. Um, you find a very easy way to get on the roof, which is basically just outside of the elevator she was last seen in. There's a window that you could open, get in a fire escape um, ladder, and, and get right onto the roof if you wanted to. So, that... yeah, and there's you know there's a couple of important considerations on that conversation too. The mm -hmm. um, they were able to have alarms on those windows as well. Mm -hmm. uh, from what I understand, there's not, I don't think there's air conditioning in that hotel and it can get pretty hot down there. I bet. So I think they opted to not have alarms on a lot of those windows because the hallways are very long and there's only that window kind of at the end of the hallway. 
And I can tell you when I was there, those windows were always open because the only breeze that's coming through is coming through that one window. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I understand, though, two of the levels do have alarms on the actual window, but you know, you're, you've got another dozen levels that don't. The, there is an interior staircase that leads to a door that goes out to the rooftop as well. That has an alarm system on it. The legal, the court documentation uh, has also Santiago's manager testify that um, that alarm is tested monthly. And it, it apparently has an audible alarm that goes off that's so loud you can hear it on the top two floors. But then it also has a line that runs down to the front desk to let them know that it's been triggered. Hmm. So the, the hard thing to understand about all this is, yeah, in crime scene, they talked about they got the dog to hit on the window. But the lead investigator uh, commented in an article, and this I think was only a few years ago, that he still didn't know the path that she took to actually get into the tank. They, they couldn't find any evidence or any trace from the rooftop to say, you know, she had obviously gone to the middle where there was a, a ladder that was left, or she went to the mechanical building that was besides the tanks. We could tell that she climbed up the, the, the building there and then jumped down to that nearest tank. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the lead investigator of LAPD still had questions about, he, he couldn't quite, have the forensic information to follow her trace but they did get it the hit at the window yeah that my my thing is like there's even if you can't say exactly how she got there and how she got into the tank you can say ways that she could have got there and could have got to the tank they just don't it seems like they just can't give the definitive explanation but they can certainly give options of how they they would have been able to do it or how she would have been able to do it yeah, a rooftop, uh, and you're talking weeks of exposure, Southern California sun. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I'm not surprised that they can't find any forensic information up there for her path to the tank. One other big talking point um, that that people bring up is the fact that when she was found, she had no clothes on. Of course, she was last seen with clothes on, and the clothes were found in the tank with her. A lot of people will say why would her clothes not be on if it wasn't foul play? But we don't need to talk about it much because in my mind, if I had, like I'm wearing a a black hoodie right now and jeans, if I fell in water and I had to tread water, the first thing I'd be doing is taking my hoodie and my jeans off. Oh, and and for other reasons, you might think of, you know, I'm going to try to throw this outside or use it to scale up to the hatch or you might notice because of the gravity well system that water's coming in from some particular pipe. And maybe if you block that, mm. you're hoping that it'll drop to a level where you're going to be okay in there for a while. Or maybe you try to block where the water's leaving so that it fills enough so that you could swim up to where the hatch is and left, lift yourself out. I think there's a lot of different um, things that, that you can understand in terms of removing the clothing. And then, of course, there's paradoxical undressing. Uh, where if you do start to freeze, and I think the temperature in a water tank like that, even though we're talking about Southern California, I think there's still a pretty good chance of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start to freeze, your your mind kind of gets tricked into feeling like your skin's burning, and it's very frequent for victims of, of that to remove their clothing. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm guessing, but where there was issues with water pressure, if there is a pipe where water is coming from the tank, down into the building it very easily could have been her sweater and skirt that clogged that and i i I think you know knowing the autopsy information um 
I'm assuming that you're right about that because she was um, fairly, she was she was all complete. I guess is is the best way to say it. Um, yeah, I do I do think it was probably the clothing that was stopping mm-hmm. it. So knowing everything you know about this case, reading into it and following it as long as you have, are, do you believe that the official explanation got it right? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, yeah. I I don't know how you can go through you know years of looking into this. I'm telling you, it was it was the hatch. I mean, once once that information got squared up, now crime scene has kind of in a way opened up new questions about the hatch because they talk about the fact that they had a helicopter do a scan of the rooftop uh, using a light and there's a lot of people that are now coming to my old videos and new videos and they're like john this isn't making sense i mean if you had a helicopter that's shining this um big i can't remember what they call it night sun i think Hmm. light down on that rooftop how are they not noticing the big square black hole on one of the tanks that isn't on the other three um so that's kind of the new point of contention but it still doesn't you know it's it, it, it it's hard for me to say, yes, I get it. I, I think it's it's interesting to try to wonder about that. Um, the tank is closest to the mechanical building. So depending on the angle of the helicopter and the shadow of the mechanical building, that could have potentially blocked the hatch from being seen. Um, uh, yeah, other people are also wondering, though, well, if you're going to do a helicopter search like that, why do you have it happening at night? Like, why are you looking at the rooftop at night? She's missing for weeks before she's found. Um, it's, you know, it's a lot of interesting questions, but mm. no one's going to be able to answer those outside of LAPD. And I thought that there was a really solid moment where, um, one of the detectives and I, I just, his name keeps slipping my memory. Um, you know, he said it was a simple miss. Like there's just, there's no great explanation for it. They just simply missed it. Yeah. I don't necessarily fault them for it either. Cause that, that's a big hotel building. Like that, I think it's like 700 units or something. Like it's a massive yeah. building yeah. and the roof would have been one of many places that they looked at. So it wasn't like they did this thorough searching every closet and under every sink. I bet you, I, I, in my mind, they just kind of passed through, shined a flashlight down, seeing if they see a body laying there and they didn't. Yeah. Like I'm thinking that's probably as in depth as, as it went. But now in, in hindsight, we know where she was. So it's, it's drilling down on, you know, exactly how did the search go surrounding this one little area? If she was found in a, some, um, room on the sixth floor, we'd be digging deep into what happened on the sixth floor when they were searching and why they didn't knock on this particular door, you know, so yeah. I, I, I can understand how, how it can happen. But for me, I've, and, and I've thought this very from very early on is I, I've never felt walked too deep into the weeds of like the 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 elevator footage is edited and the LAPDs involved and the hotels involved and it's a murder and a massive cover up and conspiracy. In my mind, there if there's a bipolar or any kind of mental illness that would lead to a psychotic break, that could explain her in the elevator acting bizarre maybe reacting to things that aren't necessarily there and i could see that leading to her having maybe this artificial bravery to get up on the roof and the same things that in her mind she was running from in that elevator video maybe she was also escaping them by finding a dark spot to jump into like like a water tank and and in the like that's it's dark to think about but i can see that 
having happened. And then when you hear more about her background with mental illness and thinking she was being followed and chased at earlier parts in her life, it kind of adds to that. And were you aware of her background with this before the documentary? Not to that level. No. Mm -hmm. I mean, that did not come across in her writing for me. Um, And I'm kind of curious what the source of that information is because the family has not been uh, accessible at, at any point. Um, I believe there's a chance that her parents actually moved back to China. I think some other family members had taken over the restaurant that they owned. Um, So, yeah, no, I I don't have a a great understanding of that. Um, My understanding was it in some way came from her sister having who get who made. I don't know what the sort where it was said or written, but it was something to do with her sister saying referring to delusions that Elisa may have had earlier in life about being followed and chased. But just when I hear that and I look at the video and think of where she ended up to me, that makes the most sense, but my goodness, it's such, you know, it's a factor in this, like, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's too pervasive. There's too much information that's pointing to this. We know that that is certainly a factor. If you combine that with, um, what I think is a, a pretty well-written uh, autopsy report um, that is noting no significant injuries of any kind that you would typically see in a, an attack or a homicide or something of that nature. What what you know? What are we looking for at that point? It, it just it gets very very tough to say uh, there's someone that attacked her in some way because we don't have physical inf- information that supports that. Yeah, because that's another thing, too, is she's found in the tank, and although she doesn't have her clothes on, she doesn't have any visible signs of injury, and, and she was not a big woman, but even if there's two or three people, to, to get a not-a-big-woman up a ladder into yeah. a you know an almost 10 foot tall water tank like that's not that's not an easy feat uh, i've had to change the um the blinds on my uh, on my uh picture window in my living room and i had to get up like three steps up the ladder and yeah. if you go look at my living room now there's marks all over the walls for me trying to navigate that <laughs> but it's um yeah i just i don't see any way that she would end up in there without visible visible injuries and you know in in some way uh just to close it up i want to ask just a couple quick things and one is um you've covered a ton of cases of missing persons and these mysteries is there any other stories that elisa's reminds you of like do you see similarities between hers and any others i don't know because hers is just such a standout in my mind for Mm -hmm. so many reasons i mean the the internet response the conversations it's just it's at a different place you know brandon lawson a little bit um there was the you young know. woman in the hotel in the united states kenesha um who was oh. found in a freezer yeah kenesha yeah kenesha jenkins if i remember correctly yeah yes. i believe you're yeah. right um yeah and yeah for- still not the same as as this like they're you know i mean there's people that are doubting the explanation in that case too so i i guess there's similar elements there's video in that case of her making her path uh to the freezer um, so yeah, a couple similarity similarities in terms of the structure. Um, I don't know for me, it's, it's more about, uh, it's more about the people, the connectivity to the people and, and how those stories are, are reflecting for our realities. I think that's, that's kind of back to why the Elisa thing has, has grabbed us in such a way because we're associating to it so easily. 
-hmm. We can all imagine trying to fit into this world, maybe taking a big adventure like that, um, facing our demons in some way and not always winning when we're, when we're trying to take on that battle. I, I think we've all been in, in similar situations. So, um, do you think there's any big lessons in this story? Is there anything that you learned from it? There's huge lessons. There's, um, essentially, I mean, it, it's what I cut my teeth on in terms of my channel structure, the way that I handle work. I look at that case. I look at the old videos that I did and I'm like, that's the worst work that I've done. You know, it's, I mean, the, the quality of the videos, the way I'm going about trying to pull together the information, the sources that I'm considering at the time, I think for at the time I was trying to figure out still a bit how to do this thing, like how to have a meaningful conversation, trying to understand other people's point of view and trying to figure out the truth in it. Um, and it is imperfect, largely imperfect, I, but I haven't removed any of it. It's still there as a piece for other people to learn from other people to look at. And the biggest compliment that I've had about that work is it's been referred to, you know, in uh, Jake Anderson's book on Elisa's case in wow. now Netflix crime scene, you know, they're, they're using it as a source for this is where the conversation was in 2015. Cause I didn't start talking about this until 2015 but we we're identifying that john has recognized what the internet was talking about the theories that were big on this case and he got to this conclusion we now have hindsight from being further down the road in terms of time and in the case of crime scene we've got a lot more resources oh, yeah. we're able to get those interviews that some youtuber with a few thousand subscribers wasn't able to get um so that's what i'm thankful for is that it's it's a part of the understanding of that chain. And I truly feel like we got to the point now that we can put Elisa's story to rest, but there was a huge question that was asked at the end of crime scene. And it is about what we're doing in this true crime community and how we handle investigations. And can there be casualties of that? Hmm. And that is the biggest lesson. That's the biggest challenge that I heard. And I, um, up for taking it on mm -hmm. um there's a bit of a controversial moment where there's one theory about a man a musician named morbid uh his real name is pablo Ver, uh, Verag, vergara sorry it's late it's late where i am <laughs> um, but uh i actually heard about pablo i got contacted by someone about a year after I started looking into the Elisa Lamb stuff and they're like, Hey John, there's this other theory. And you know, like I said, I was having a, a conversation with my audience. I was looking for whatever the next big talking point was, um, in that, in that chain of, of giant conversation. And they were like, okay, there's this guy, his name is morbid. He's into death metal or uh, black metal. He does these videos that kind of have graphic imagery that's disturbing. And guess what? he was staying at the Cecil and you know, it took like no time to look into this. Uh, he was very, at, at least at the time I was looking at it. Um, there was still traces of information where he was saying, I have nothing to do with this. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I was there a year before this. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't know until crime scene came out, but he apparently was severely cyber bullied about mm -hmm. that theory at the time that it was happening back in February of 2013. 
there was no trace of that when I went looking into that aspect of the story. But just with the information that I saw that was available, I knew there was nothing to this. And I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, I can't, you know, I'm not going to even try to. And I, di- I didn't see a big overarching internet conversation about that aspect. And to hear that this guy, you know, almost wants to take his life because of what he's going through, you know, winds up in a hospital, essentially. It was terrible. Um, So I've been kind of taking that on a little bit, really thinking about the content. And admittedly, like I watched one of my newer videos today, the stuff I was doing back in 2015, way, way, way different, completely different sources I'm using at this point. I don't even really consider for most of my 500 shows, I don't, I don't consider myself an internet sleuth at all. Uh, a lot of what I'm doing now is information aggregation. I'm going through several different legit sources, news sources that you guys are all familiar with, trying to pull together a cohesive telling of the story so that I can give it to you in one shot instead of you having to try to spend eight to 10 hours reading through 30 or 40 or different sources to come to an understanding of it. Yeah. So good way to describe it. Cause I find myself doing the, the same thing. I kind of, I consider it more as like a curator rather than yeah. an investigator. Yeah. 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 It's, it, it really is. I, I consider it a media review of the case. Now that's my starting point for any of the episodes I do now. I want to, I'm still on this mindset of being conversational um, so I start with, Hey, here's what the media is saying about this case right now. And by the way, if you're a family member and you have different information that you want to help our understanding with, let me know and I'll bring you on and we'll do an interview and I'm not going to turn you into 30 second sound bites like your nightly news is. If you need an hour and 40 minutes, like Kent Landry, the father of missing person, Jason Landry needed a few weeks ago. I'm going to give it to you. We're, we're not going to edit you in any way. We're going to get all the details out that, that we need to help your case. So it's a whole different thing, you know, and, but I was still concerned because it raises a great question. Is there casualties? Can we create victims accidentally by speculating on, Hey, what about this guy that stayed there? What about this other person? Um, it's something Let's we should find out where he works. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's the other thing when it starts going IRL, right? When all of a sudden, uh, what's the possibility or the risk that you're motivating people to go in real life and start following someone around or start, you know, um, taking pictures of them from their car? Like, you know, so I'm concerned about that. I think yeah. it was a really good call that they put into crime scene. Um, it feels like the way that it was fit into the narrative was a little unfortunate because I was strongly associated with investigating the case right from the start, the way the story is told. But in truth, I didn't come along until two years later. Um, so it's a bit of a dramatic highlight, I think, for the piece. But the reality of it is is a little bit different. But the call to action that they put out with that, I think, is definitely worth taking on. So Yeah, it's kind of like the counter to if you watch a lot of Netflix specials, they had the uh don't F with cats. That was all right. about the search for Luca Magnata. It's like yeah. in that case, it was done right. But in the case of Morbid, it was just, you know, probably the same kind of intention and motivation, but it just shows, you know, what that can end up as. Well, and the big question, and I'm actually somewhat in touch with him. We finally had a, a little bit of an exchange. I'm, I'm really wondering what community was it? Where were these messages? Who was coming after you? Because 
unfortunately, they use the term web sleuths. Web sleuths is actually it's a website that actually has a very high standard for uh, internet sleuthing and what you should and shouldn't be saying. Mm -hmm. High, tightly moderated forums. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't just go there and throw an accusation like that around. So um, yeah, I'm curious I, from Morbid's perspective who the web sleuths were. What was, I mean, are we talking a Reddit thread? Because that's a little bit different than, you know. It, that's a little more general internet user, but I'm hoping that we get a, a point to have a conversation. Yeah, with. That'll be interesting because I, I did think the same thing. I saw that they were using the phrase or the term web sleuth, I think just to mean like citizen detective, armchair detective, right. internet sleuth. But yeah, I, I was thinking the, the website web sleuths probably doesn't enjoy that phrase being tossed around. I, I, I spoke to Trisha this week and she is extremely hurt. I bet she's really, really hurt. And um, I'm going to try as kind of my efforts to help with this problem on all fronts. I'm going to get some information from her. I'm going to wrap that out with some experts that I'm pulling together to talk about this experts in this community, mm -hmm. uh, including Sarah Turney, who kind of fits both sides of the mm -hmm. equation. This is someone that um, she's a victim herself, lost her sister and took to social media to help get justice. She thinks that it's her father that's responsible. So um, yeah, we've got, uh, we're, we're basically doing kind of a round table discussion uh, on Friday night and I'll be releasing it on the channel at some point after that. And I hope other people take it wherever and broadcast it wherever. We're gonna try to figure out some set of standards, some good best practices as a basis for this thing um, and try to find out where those potential risk points are see if we can take them out so let's end with this is you you've covered a lot of um elisa lamb on your show in the past i know not all of it you're proud of but i'm sure a lot of people listening and watching want to see it where do we find you lordnarts.com just like it's spelled just like jordan you just flip that j into an l and then put the word arts after it. Um, so that's where you can find all my stuff, all my podcasts. Uh, you can get to it. That's a good launching point for everything. But if you're already on YouTube, you can just search for the term brain scratch. That will get you to my channel pretty quickly. Yeah. John, well, this has been awesome. I'm so glad to have you telling the story on the show. You, you did an amazing job in the documentary. You did an amazing job with your coverage in the past, although you learned along the way. But they say if you can go back and watch your early creations and not be sick to your stomach, then you probably didn't get much better. So uh, I guess that's like a little award for you, a little, you know, that you know you're doing it right if it turns you if it turned you off that bad but i yeah. think uh what you do is awesome and you truly are one of the best and definitely one of the good guys good people in this business so i appreciate you giving me so much of your time i appreciate that very much jordan thank you and keep up the good fight man we're all we're all here here trying to find help for these cases trying to help these families in any way that we can so i appreciate your help on that too Awesome. Well, I wish you all the best. So we'll uh, we'll cut it here. But uh, again, thanks so much for your time. Because I, I can't imagine how busy you are right now with that documentary just coming out. I'm sure oh yeah. Pulled in many different directions. Definitely. I want to thank you for joining me in this discussion surrounding the tragic and mysterious death of Elisa Lamb. As fascinating as this story is, 
I hope that during our conversation, we made it clear that Elisa is much more than a character in an internet mystery. She was an intelligent young woman with her whole life ahead of her. But sadly, it seems mental illness, a viral video, and a horrific end have swallowed up her life, but hopefully not her identity. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode. But before we part, I'm going to give some thanks. First, a huge thank you to John Lorden from the Lorden Arts True Crime Media Empire for sharing his thoughts and his experiences with Elisa's story. I've added links to John's great content in the episode notes. As well, a huge shout out to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime. Without your interest and your support, Nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take some of the weight off the show's back, please consider subscribing to the premium feed. Not only will it make the show possible, it'll give you more of each topic than you're going to find here on the free feed, as I'm adding exclusive content to the premium feed weekly. So for about the price of a cup of coffee, help keep the show alive and give yourself more nighttime by subscribing at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I'm going to give thanks to the newest supporters of the show, Jeremy, Shane, Erica, and Sam. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a huge hand by simply telling your friends about us and sharing the episodes across social media. And if you have any story ideas or if you'd like to give feedback on the show, you can contact me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact. I'm also on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and I'm on YouTube most Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sunday nights at 9.15 Eastern. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.